Hey guys, it's Mandy. Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to take a minute to thank my patrons. You are the ones making this possible. You are the ones keeping restorative grief, both on the airwaves and in the lives of people who need grief support and a better understanding of how to support themselves through their losses. So if you're interested in joining us, you can visit my website, mandykapehart.com, for all the links to check out the premium episodes and premium content that are available to you by becoming a patron. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 93, titled Hospice, Children, and Cultivating Curiosity with Sydney Crane. If you were suddenly faced with your greatest fear as a parent, what kind of resources could create safety for you? Today's guest is Sydney Crane, a licensed marriage and family therapist in Lubbock, Texas. She is a former bereavement counselor and current bereavement coordinator, as well as the newly published author of the book, I'm on Hospice, a children's book for processing and coping with a terminal illness. She wrote this book after working with a particular family in hospice care and realizing the printed resources to support children in hospice just didn't exist. So she set about to change that. Today, we're going to unpack another layer of grief and parenting, which can apply to you even if you are not a parent, to be clear, because we all parent ourselves and others in ways that deserve the same gentle hand we would offer to a little one. So please listen with the intention and compassion that you deserved when you were young. And as a content warning, this conversation does contain stories of childhood cancer. So please listen with discretion. everybody. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. Today's guest is Sydney Crane. I'm really excited for you to get to know her and her work. She's a bereavement coordinator and the newly published author of the book, I'm on Hospice, a children's book for processing and coping with terminal illness. So obviously I'm really glad to have you on the show, Sydney. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to be here. Oh, good. I love when people are excited to talk about loss and grief, right? (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. Yes. Let's do this. Well, this month, um, and really lately, a lot of our episodes and conversations have been drilling into the work that we need as adults to do within ourselves, but also around parenting, um, and working with children in order to support kids who are experiencing grief, which is at any given moment, like all of them. So, Start us off. Talk about how you got into this work and a little bit about your work with kids and what what drew you into deciding to publish this book. Yeah. So I'll back up almost seven years ago, which is crazy. I was still in graduate school. And as part of our grad school requirement, we have to have a one-year externship site. And so to be totally transparent, I was really torn between hospice and the juvenile justice center. And when I really sat down to think about it, schedule-wise, it was going to be really difficult to work at the Juvenile Justice Center. So I applied at hospice and definitely had this idea of what I was getting into and what it would look like when I went to apply and interview. Um, And I, I never left. So I did my internship there for about a year. And in the summer before I graduated, there were two bereavement coordinators, one of whom left to go back into private practice. 
So I applied for the job and, and I got it. And it has been some of the most, if not the most sacred work I think I've ever done. Um, which isn't something I think most people would say when you're talking about grief and death and all of the things that I think are very taboo in society, especially when you're talking about kiddos, because um, this hospice also serves pediatric mm. uh, patients. So um, I I was there for about seven years and then stepped into my current role uh, in January, but I still do some PRN contract work with this hospice. And um, I'm very thankful for that to, to keep my foot in the door. Um, and yeah, so this, the, the book came about, I was never anticipating or planning on writing a book or becoming an author. I was really moved by this family, December of 2021. Uh, kiddo he was nine years old at the time it was little boy his older brother who was 12 and then his parents and he had had a form of brain cancer that had returned so they found it when he was two it returned uh, when he was nine and they were still undergoing aggressive treatment but also wanted the supportive care of of our hospice team so met this kiddo and his sweet sweet family in December of 21 and I remember very vividly, I went out with our music therapist and just introduced ourselves and our roles with hospice and answered questions that they had and then really took space to talk to the patient and his brother about what they knew about the cancer and any fears or questions that they had and expectations they had of us. And I think from that moment, there was just something so special about this family. And I've worked with several, several families and children, unfortunately, before this one, there was just something about this little boy. It was his spirit, his outlook on life, his wit, like his personality, like never wavered, even as his disease progressed. Um, and so visited this boy pretty frequently. We did lots of art projects, played Uno a lot, um, which you'll find in the book. There's just little pieces and little symbols throughout the book that reflect things that we did with this this family and this little boy. Um, but after this initial visit, I was doing some research trying to find, you know, how do you have these conversations about hospice with children, whether it's a child that's on service or maybe they've got a grandparent or there's another family member. How do we talk about what hospice is and what a terminal illness is? And I couldn't find anything. And so this idea was born. I started to write just about my experience with this little boy and his family. And as I continued to visit with them, it kind of just wrote the book just kind of wrote itself really um and they were very willing and open and okay with me writing this book that reflected their journey and their experience and um unfortunately he passed away in August of 22 and the book came out shortly after and I in addition to just filling this gap in resources I really hope that it honors him well and continues to honor his family well. Um, so that's a little bit about the story and my hospice journey, but the reason behind the book. It's such a brilliant moment to have that aha revelation of there's no resources 
oh my gosh, I'm the resource. I'm the one that has to step into this terrifying, vulnerable space and carve a path. And to your point, people don't necessarily understand hospice um, or what it means and the purpose of it, how it is about comfort, how it is about intention and care and enveloping someone in compassion as they work through the hardest part of life, which death and dying. And I, I, it takes a special and special is not even the right word. It takes a very intentional and vulnerable human to be able to do that work and to know how to navigate it without becoming enmeshed emotionally and become, you know, just really dug in, um, in unhealthy ways. And so I love hearing how that relationship with this family and this little boy became something that could thrive and continue and create legacy, both for him and his family, but also for you. That's a very, it's a stunning impact, Sydney. I appreciate it. it. There were lots of tears. It was very emotional, but it, it came naturally. There was something and it's almost indescribable, but there was something about this family that was so moving and easy is not the right word, but this book, like it just kind of wrote itself. The more that I interacted with this family and just our journey that we had together. Um, and yeah, ultimately just wanted to fill this gap in resources. Like, let's talk about it. Let's be direct about what's happening, but also give space to address questions and address fears that come with being on hospice and come with having a terminal illness. Um, so yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. I think being able to create that container for families too is a special thing because they're not sure what to expect, whether they have encountered hospice before it doesn't matter when it's a child, it's the all bets are off, right? All of those yeah. things that rise up with that in us as parents and as protectors of children become really convoluted with what is needed and what is necessary or what is unnecessary in the process of creating a care plan and comfort for a child that's going through a terminal illness. And so before we go a little further, can you just briefly explain the purpose of hospice that it's not like the flag that, okay, you've got a week left. Like, yeah, let's, let's take some myth away from it for people who may not know. Absolutely. And I feel like that's a big part of our role too, is talking with families about what hospice is not. I know for me, when I started my internship with hospice many years ago, I went in very much with this idea that it's a bunch of old people who are dying, like death is imminent. They've got like a day or so. Totally not the case. And in fact, with kiddos, they typically live longer, um, sometimes because they're already seeking aggressive treatment in conjunction with hospice. Um, but I think really just the quality of life and what we can provide for them. And so hospice is really about comfort and care and just giving people their dignity and honoring their wishes before they die. And that looks very different from patient to patient, especially with children. And kiddos are different because they can actually receive that supportive care from hospice while they're seeking aggressive treatment. So it's not this, you have to pick one or the other. And I think that helps with families because they're not forced to choose. They have the option to continue treatment while also having the support from hospice and the care team. And they have the option to have music therapy. They can have a bath aid if they need assistance with toileting, showering. 
Um, they can have a chaplain if they want, they can have bereavement if they want, uh, but all of them have a nurse, they have a social worker, they have a doctor that will come out and visit and just assess where they are as far as their disease process. Um, but really, I feel like it's it's patient first, like we want to respect and honor their wishes, and we're just there to help support them and honor them in that. I think that that's ideally what all medical practices want to be patient first, but we know very well that that's not always the case. And so being able to approach it from a side of death and dying is the natural progression of life. When it happens at such a unique age and in such a, a forced way, we'll say forced because it's not the old age that we all aspire to reach and just natural death. Um, that is a complicated intersection. So how do you how do you approach knowing that each family is different? Each child you engage with is in a different context in their story. Like how are you approaching those families with invitation to learn, knowing you're probably working against a lot of resistance and fear? Yeah. So lots of resistance and fear, particularly with children that we have on service. Ultimately, I feel like just meeting them where they're at. I love, love to learn about families and patients outside of their diagnosis. Like, what did you do before you got ill? Or what was your favorite subject in school? Like, what do you like to do for fun? And sometimes the kids are capable of still doing those things. Um, but sometimes taking the pressure off of why we're there, like, okay, let's talk about the diagnosis. Let's talk about end of life. I, I typically don't jump in immediately and start talking about those things. I ask a lot of questions just to see where they're at. Um, and also like being intentional with when I go in, I know bereavement and grief, those can be really heavy when you're meeting families. And so I like to go in and just introduce myself as the family therapist here to help facilitate healthy conversations and walk with them in this journey. And if they want my support along the way, great. If not, you know, I'm still going to be there to check in <clears throat> and provide follow-up. And so with families who are a little bit resistant, I get it. I think death is one of those things that naturally we feel some anxiety about when we think about our own mortality. Um, and so validating that, being intentional with understanding like, yes, this is a normal human experience. It's okay to be nervous and anxious. Um, the big piece is just validating and understanding where some of these fears are. Cause I think a lot of the times when there's resistance from families, it's because there's this fear or there's this misconception or misunderstanding, or maybe they've had a prior experience with death that wasn't pleasant. And so I'll often explain or use the example of, you know, when we bring children into the world, when we bring babies into the world, it's a celebration. There's a lot of people around to help. And Death can kind of be the same way. We can celebrate it. We can mourn. We can honor the loved one, uh, but we can have a lot of support around that person. Um, so really just making it an experience that's comfortable and peaceful as much as we can, but also meeting them exactly where they're at. If there is resistance, if there is fear and frustration. Your role as a family therapist makes your, I mean, your training gives you such a framework, such a stronger framework to be able to create boundaries and create some space for yourself to process within this. 
what would you say to the family members who are experiencing hospice or who are experiencing their children on the front end of this journey or experiencing a loved one experiencing, right? Like secondary family members um, who aren't trained therapists, who aren't grief professionals who can say, well, scientifically, here's what you're experiencing. How do you bring people to a place where they can soften and be comfortable saying, yeah, let me just talk about life before. That's a good question. So it takes a lot of patience. I think again, like coming in truly just meeting people where they're at, but having this genuine curiosity about them. And a lot of the times they'll be very transparent. Like these are my credentials, but that goes out the door. I am not the expert in your lives. This is not my experience. And I'm not going to pretend to act like I know what your experience is. Um, this is what I've seen over my years of working with hospice patients, but I don't, I don't apply that with every family that I see. Um, and so, yeah, just meeting people where they're at, appreciating what their backgrounds are, what their beliefs are. There are so many different families and there's so much diversity that I've seen. And it's been so very humbling because a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures have beliefs about death. Um, and I respect that. And I think just having a curious mindset, I think a lot of the times when people don't understand something, we're quick to judge. And I like to reframe it where I'm not going to come in and judge. I just want to understand. I want to, I'm curious about it. So tell me more. Um, and then reflecting that back, like, Oh, I heard you say this is, does that make sense? Is that what I heard? Am I understanding right? Um, that has been tremendously helpful. And I think allowing families to soften when I'm first meeting them and having what can be very daunting conversations and emotionally charged conversations. Yeah, that's a perfect, like safe space to land for people because I can, I'm, I'm picturing families with sick babies and children that I know who have express their own experiences. And half of them have said like, yeah, we had this incredible experience or the, this, the team were so wonderful. And then there's that one person who got their hackles up and scared them or made them feel like just had no bedside manner is one way to put it, Mm -hmm. but really that just had no emotional intelligence around how to get to know people like, and take out the, the, um, pathology of it really. Yeah. It can be very pathologizing. I think another thing I keep in mind is a lot of people with the best intentions can come, especially with caregivers, like they have their scope of practice, you know, they're coming in to do their job and maybe just have, they have different training and a different background, right? So might not know how to pause and give space that the family needs. And so it's been great to work with the team. They can go in at different points and see different things and offer suggestions like, Hey, I noticed mom was a little withdrawn. Can you maybe check in on her? Mm-hmm. And even if it's a family that's been resistant to bereavement support or family therapy, I really like to just show up and check in, um, whether it's showing up on the doorstep or just making a phone call to check in, reminding them that we're here. So I think a lot of family, friends, caregivers, will say, I'm here if you need something, call me if you need something. And instead of like putting that pressure back on the family, just showing up, just making a phone call to check in, I think can be enough in taking the pressure off of families and knowing that, okay, I've got this support, this constant, who's going to check in. 
Um, I don't necessarily have to reach out. I know that they'll call and check in on me. Yeah. Um, and I found that to be really helpful in my work. That's one of those things that I try to teach people through this show and even through my one-on-one work too, is that don't put homework on the grievers or the grieving family be the action, be the one that you say you are. Don't just say I'm here if you need me, because if you've gone through grief personally, and I can see that you have, of course, you are able to go back into your own experience and remember, wow, when I was at my lowest, the last thing I wanted to do was make anyone else feel as low as I felt. And my fear of asking for help meant I would either have to be super vulnerable and expose myself or I would have to ask them to carry it or they would feel like they were picking it up. And we get into that overthinking cycle of, I just guess I'll do this by myself. And we have those midnights alone and scared and overwhelmed instead of knowing like, oh, there's someone that keeps texting me at 2 a.m. just to say, hey, are you up? If you are, text me back, I'm here. Yeah. Like that's a that's a huge piece of it. And I I think for a family that's going through hospice, there are 3 million things on their plates and in their minds. Yeah, you're right. I heard time and time again, where families say, yes, I've got a great support, but it's nice just to have somebody like, I know that you're here for bereavement support. Like this is your profession. And so it's nice to be able to not worry about being a burden, mm-hmm. whatever that means yeah. <laughs> and be able to reach out for support from a bereavement support specialist. Um, and I've, I like to tell people like, we can use our space, whether it's me coming to the home or you coming to my office for you to share whatever it is that you need. You can use it as a space to rest. If you want, I've had people just take a 30 minute nap with me because oh, they wow. have been so overwhelmed and, um, working on the clock and, um, you know, if it's a place that you need to cuss or scream, like that's okay. And I think everybody in general, I feel like it's great to have a space where you can do that, whether it's alone or with a trusted professional or somebody you can confide in. But I think that that helps a lot when families are feeling like you said, that pressure of having to carry everything, but might be resistant to reaching out to friends or family for extra support. Well, yeah, because that space is easily judged. Like you said earlier, we're here to be curious. What do you need? What do you actually need? Do you need to break some stuff? Let's go. Here's a line of glass jars and a hat, a hammer. Let's get it. You know, Yes. versus the family who's worried about any number of things. Oh, that's not an appropriate response. Or do you really want to be that person who's swearing and angry all the time? And to that response, you're like, yeah, I do. Because it's all I feel. Yes. Actually, I yeah. would like to be, I'm going to be that person right now. You have five seconds. Step back. Like, yeah. <laughs> Watch out. Ah, okay. So with that in mind, how do you curate that space for little ones, for kiddos who are processing all of this big emotion? And typically at that age, we're teaching them this emotional intelligence that has nuance. We're trying to get them into that space of, of curiosity, of self-reflection, but we're doing it with the purpose of longevity in our mind. And if we know that we're approaching a child who may or may not have longevity, how do you allow that without worry about lasting impact? I'm I'm thinking about the parent that's like witnessing their child going through this great trauma and they're going through trauma alongside. 
to then hear someone say, it's okay to scream and cuss and be angry as you need to. Because when I've said it to children, they get, parents get really like, well, is it okay? And I'm like, oh, oh, you weren't given that space either as a kid. Okay. Yeah, of course it's okay. How do you have those conversations when you realize like, oh, I'm, I'm here supporting this child, like first and foremost, and yet there's resistance in how I'm approaching and supporting. Yeah. So I will typically be intentional about meeting with parents, guardians first, like, how can I be most helpful? What do you feel like your kiddo needs? And how do you think I can be helpful with those needs? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes yeah, I, I think of when I've worked with siblings that might not know the extent of the diagnosis, I never want to meet with them and maybe reveal something that parents haven't shared yet. So in an attempt to avoid that, I'll usually visit with parents and one, just talk about my intentions and ways I intend to be helpful and walk alongside the kiddos. Um, but also letting them know, like you model what you want your kids to do. Right. And so if you're upset, if you're grieving, if you're sad, it's okay to show that in front of your kiddo. It's okay to be human in front of your kiddo. Um, cause I think a lot of the times what I've seen is when parents go behind closed doors and they're showing emotions, kids can internalize that as well. Maybe it's not safe, or maybe it's not comfortable for me to do that. So I need to be strong. It's a word I hear a lot uh, and not be emotional or not show that I'm upset or that I'm scared. And so I'm really intentional about having that conversation with parents, but also with kiddos, like it's okay. But also when I hear you say, what does it mean to be strong? What does that look like? And let's maybe talk about rewriting this narrative of what strength is and Again, I think it comes back to meeting kiddos where they're at and really asking a lot of open-ended questions like, what do you like to do or what are you scared of and letting them run with it. And it can be a slower process, you know, getting to know kids and engaging in activities with them, I think is a way to help them open up a little bit more, but it can feel a little bit slower versus visiting with parents, Um, but really getting on kids' levels, finding out what their interests are, and then processing more of the diagnosis and how it's affected them. Uh, And also talking about memory making. That's a conversation that's come up a lot. You know, what what artwork, what things do you want to do that your parents and your family can enjoy? And that was a lot of what we did with this little boy who I wrote the book about. There were a lot of art projects and lots of things they wanted to do so he could leave them behind for his family. And it just became this really fun. Like there's one activity we did. The older brother had found a YouTube video of this like swinging paint can. And so we put tarps down in the garage and put paint in this can and drilled a hole through it and just swung it around. And it made this really pretty artwork on this canvas. And I think it was a really beautiful blend of memory making because we know what's coming. We've talked about it but we're also going to have a lot of fun and make a lot of awesome memories while we're making these memories. Um, So it's challenging. I don't think there's one right way to do it or have these conversations, but I know for me, what was helpful is being very transparent and talking with parents about my role and wanting to be very respectful of what information they had or had not shared yet. And then visiting with the kids or the kiddo and talking about what their interests are and what 
just asking them what questions they have about hospice, about their terminal illness. Yeah. I would love to hear a little more about memory making. I'm envisioning these kids who, like you'd said earlier, may or may not be able to participate in the things that they love to do and that they've always loved. And we know like the Make-A-Wish Foundation exists and that's a thing. And there's those big bucket lists. I want this and that's all I want. Um, how do you normalize those activities for kids that they can continue to do without adding, I don't know, there's a sense of reverence to this concept of memory making, which is beautiful, but it can be really intimidating, I think, to say like, oh, I want to, I want to get it right. So how do you speak to that perfectionist or that, that child that says, well, what if it's not a good enough memory or I have a lot of questions that I could come up with. I love it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go back to this sweet little family. He was a perfectionist. And I remember when we were doing this paint splatter, he had some limited mobility in his hand and in his dominant hand. And I remember he got really frustrated because when he was splattering the paint, it, it wasn't splattering the way that he wanted. The colors weren't blending the way that he wanted. And we had this really beautiful reframe and his brother was monumental in helping him understand like, Hey, I love this quirk about this. We're going to cherish this. Like you did that piece right there. Cause they had worked on it together, but there was this one little section that was evident. Like it didn't come quite, <laughs> didn't quite come out the way that he wanted it. Um, but really the brothers stepped in before any of us did and said, no, this is awesome. Like we know that this was the part that you did and it's great. And they laughed about it. And he even helped. I remember at one point cause he was in a wheelchair um, so couldn't really get down and, and help us with some of the other things that we were doing, but came up with this really creative way, like put a paintbrush in his hand and like had him flick it, like flick the tip of the brush just so the paint would splatter a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so I think one, like the brother was amazing and awesome. And mind you, he was only 11 at the time. So the fact that an 11 year old could have this spin on perfectionism, like, Hey, it doesn't have to be perfect. And I'm glad that it's not because I know that that right there, like you did that and we can laugh about it and we can also try and make some edits to it and do things differently. Um, so I think he was a great example of when kids are trying to maybe perfect some of their artwork or, um, even like looking a certain way. I remember specifically with this kiddo, he struggled a lot with how the medications were affecting him physically. Um, And so we had a lot of conversations about body image and how a lot of the things that were happening to his body were out of his control. And it was just part of the medicine and the medication. Um, And we did a lot of affirmations and talked a lot about what makes you, you the outside, like what the medicine's doing is not who you are at the core. Um, and I think that was powerful and helpful for him. Um, yeah, not easy though. Uh, there are kids who, yeah, want to do things right and want to have things look a certain way, but I think it's the imperfections that make us unique. And his brother really pointed that out beautifully. That's a very vivid memory I have on you know, in this moment when this patient wanted to have this perfect piece of artwork, this one little quirk that was hardly noticeable, but stuck out to him, his brother was able to say, man, that's cool. Like, 
we will remember this forever. Like that's the part that you did. And they laughed about it and had a blast with it. Mm. It's really evident how visceral that memory is, even just on your face as you're talking about it. And I love the gentle reframe from the brother instead of that. It's such a stark contrast to the, the way we have become used to minimizing and using this idea of, you know, toxic positivity, even of it's okay. It's perfect. I love it. I love how perfect it is. No, actually it is imperfect. And that's what I love about it. That imperfection is what makes you, you. And even as you said that statement, I thought, well, those are where you can look for the memories you want to make. What are the things that make you who you are? Because it would be easy to say, okay, I'm going to do these 20 things I've never done. And we're going to make these great fun memories, but you're still you showing up in the midst of those. And it could almost be more powerful if you do the things that you have always loved because they make you feel fully alive because they bring that vibrancy out of you and your relationships to one another. So yeah, I'm so glad that, yeah, that's a really cool story. Yeah. Mm. It happened. There was another instance that I remembered (laughs) this. I mean, this family humor worked with them. Like we made, we did a lot of things and tried different art projects and I am not a creative person. I let the family usually take the reins and I just bring the supplies and try and help facilitate. Uh, But they wanted to do a hand mold at one point and we made, I had brought a social worker with me to help. And it was like this powdery mix with this other liquid that you have and so many steps. And so we got powder like all over the kitchen floor. And then you had to like hold your hands together for so long And this little boy who was a perfectionist, I remember him looking up and he said, good grief, (laughs) just (laughs) had a blast with it. And it it came out. Okay. I remember the mom later saying, well, I went in to try and touch up some things and one of the fingers fell off, (laughs) but we loved it. We laughed about it and it was great. So it was one of these things that goes back to perfectionism. Like it's the quirks and it's maybe the mistakes that make the memory that make it laughable. Like when y'all were doing this together, that's what you're going to hold on to. Not necessarily what the end product is. You'll have that to cherish and to hold on to, but it's the act and doing things together as a family, when you're actually creating the memory Mm. that will stay forever and is invaluable. Mm. It's almost like you don't need to buy the expensive souvenir. You just need to break off a piece of greenery on your way out the door. And then you have your Disneyland souvenir that exactly. triggers all the memories <laughs> Keep that in exactly. mind for the next family trip. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the memories. <laughs> Take me back into this family story a little bit more in how, how things are going now that the book is out, that their son is gone. How did they receive the story? How did they, how are they doing? I mean, I imagine you're not like obviously in contact all the time, but how are they, how, how has the book impacted their family? I think it's impacted them in more ways. And I could say myself included than I thought possible. Mm. Um, I actually waited to ask. So I started writing this story pretty shortly after I met them. Um, and last summer when he was declining, Uh, and ultimately passed away, I remember just having this drive to want to just get the book out and to finish it. And 
wanted to have the illustrations resemble a lot of what this family looked like. And so I waited, I think it was his second, the second month after he had passed, I reached out to mom and shared this idea, this project I'd been working on and said, you know, he inspired me. You guys inspired me. What are your thoughts? Is this okay? Can I have a dedication to you guys at the beginning of the book? And are you okay with me resembling the illustrations of y'all um, or having the illustrations resemble you guys? And I was nervous to ask. I didn't want to amplify the grief that I know was so very intense for them. Uh, but I felt like I knew this family well enough where it would be okay and and it would be more of a way to honor him. They wouldn't be resistant to it. So mom responded, was in tears. We talked about it and I, it, no hesitation. She thought it was beautiful, thought it would be great. And um, I remember they came to the book signing in February and there were so many tears. They had not read the book yet. They had not seen it. I sent a couple of teaser pictures of what he was going to look like and what they look like and what the care team looked like. And when we saw each other at the book signing, I handed them their copy and had a dedication for them inside and many, many tears. They were really excited. Um, at one point, I think dad had said, I wish we would have had this before. Um, and yeah, it, it was emotional. Um, and a couple of weeks after that, um, the mom reached out and said, you know, we have it with all of his things, with all of the artwork that we did. Um, and I think they're, they're really proud. I hope that they're proud. Um, it just sounds like this has been a completely life altering experience for you in the best of ways, in a way that you never saw coming that, like you said, you barely chose this line of work as we all do. Yeah. I think every grief professional I know is like, I never chose this. <laughs> why me? Yes. But also, Ooh, why not me? Okay. Let's get after it. Um, and I, I'm just so encouraged because I think that, like I said earlier, working with children is such a scary prospect in the best of times, right? We could walk into a classroom, everyone's healthy, happy, and whole. And we realize, oh no, we're the grown up. Okay. Now what? And I feel like that would be a really easy thing to do is to walk into a situation with a family and a child who is terminally ill and say, oh no, I'm the professional. What do I do? So being able to say, I'm going to set all of my credentials aside because I'm actually just here as another fellow human. That's a really, yeah. really difficult um, mindset to cultivate. So how would you draw someone who is starting in this or is in bereavement care and is burning out or who is really just trapped with their education or trapped with negative experiences in this work? How would you call them into this place again where compassion and curiosity take the front seat? I think that's a really good question. Um, I can say from my experience, I remember there were times I'd be out in the field seeing a lot of different patients and it, it would, sometimes when I would just get bogged down in the office with doing more of the administrative tasks, I would have to just really be mindful and intentional about my why mm. and remembering that I'm going out 
to have these sacred conversations and sacred encounters with families at this very vulnerable, but also very sacred time of their life. Um, and I just like every home, every facility, if it was a hospital room, there's something different I'm going to learn each time. And I think just with time and experience, there's just more of this curiosity and want to learn and want to meet people. And it truly is like, to, it's humbling for me when families are accepting of me coming into their home, especially when it's a child. Um, and I know this mom can attest, she spoke at one of our fundraisers a couple months back and said, when you guys came in, I was very nervous about what you were going to say, what you weren't going to say, but you just asked him what he liked to do and asked him what questions he had. You didn't go in there with an agenda. You truly met him where he was at. And instead of having like a face-to-face -face conversation or sitting across the room, like maybe two adults would, you got down on his level and pulled out a deck of Uno cards or pulled out a thing of Bananagrams and just played with him and had just this casual conversation. It didn't have to be so full of emotion and so full of anxiety. Um, and so I would encourage younger professionals who are maybe exploring the hospice world or wanting to look into being a bereavement coordinator, doing grief support, remember your why. And it's okay, despite all the education and training, you don't have to act like the expert because you're not the expert in these people's lives. Um, and I think that can take a lot of pressure off of having to do things right or going in with a treatment plan or interventions that you have lined up. You are just a calming presence meeting these people where they are yeah. amidst a very crazy, chaotic, emotional time. That's just showing up. That's so good. Okay, Sydney. So the book is out there in the world. What is next for you now? Next is continuing some of my other projects that I have at my new job, um, but also working on the manuscript for the next book. Uh, the character in the book, his name is Riley. And really the goal is to have him talk about his experience being on hospice and talking about how his body is changing and the different processes that happen when somebody has a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. So that's in the early stages, started to work on the manuscript for that. Um, maybe by the end of the year, we'll have something out. I love the idea of a series of stories about this little boy and all of the things from his perspective that obviously he shared over time, but also that you can extrapolate going out and being a resource. That's beautiful. And yeah. you also just launched a podcast. Do you want to talk about that real quick? I of did. Your very so, own. <laughs> very own podcast. We're, we're starting this project. So, you know, grief, bereavement, hospice, one of my biggest passions. I also am very passionate just about mental health in general and sports. I love all things, basketball, football, any sport, you name it. And so really a blend of understanding mental health with athletes. And so over the next several months, I've got lots of guests lined up from high school level to professional level, talking about their experiences and the stigmas around mental health on the court, off the court. Yeah. So that's in the works. We launched last week and have our next guest actually this afternoon. So I'm excited about it. Excellent. I love it. Well, I'll make sure that there is a link for your show 
in the show notes as well, as well as a link to the book. So the book you guys is I'm on hospice, a children's book for processing and coping with a terminal illness. And Sydney is clearly an articulate and brilliant mind. I'm so grateful that you're in this field with me because children, especially deserve so much more compassion and um, just understanding whether we're parents or not on how we show up as the adults around them. So thank you for the work that you're doing and for making space to share it with me today. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to episode 93 of Restorative Grief. The heart and intention behind Sydney's work is so evident in the way she presents her story and the stories of the patients she cares for. Hospice is an easily misunderstood and often very activating concept. So the more we normalize the ideas around death, dying, and hospice care, the more comfortable our culture can become with the natural yet painful transitions of life. Intentional work like Sydney's invites us into a more nuanced and time-tested approach of curiosity and compassion, which you know we love around here. If this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, I would be honored to hear from you through a review or even on social media. I'm very active on Instagram and Twitter under at Mandy Capehart and connecting with you, hearing about how these conversations affect your life and affect your understanding of grief is exactly why I do it. It's so important to me to know that this is making a difference. And speaking of which, thank you to all of my patrons and financial supporters. You are also making a huge difference and you're the reason this show continues to reach people who live in care deserts where grief support isn't necessarily available. If you are interested in gaining some bonus content and also becoming a patron, you can look me up on Patreon under Mandy Capehart or visit mandycapehart.com. All the links are there for you. Either way, I would love to see you and make sure you subscribe to the show just so you don't miss our weekly episodes. And before we go, as always, one last thing. Please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.